You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. Come on back, grab some coffee or pastries if you want. On your way back, you can grab a Bible if you need one. There's some hardback black Bibles on the table back there. We're, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So as you find your seat, go ahead and open Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. If you're using one of those hardback black Bibles, that's on page 979. We're nearing the end of our Ephesians series that we've been working our way through. We just have a few sermons left in the series, and today's text is the last sermon in kind of this little mini-series within it in, about our most basic relationships and how we live within them. We started several weeks ago when we looked at verse 21, and what we said together is that as the Spirit-filled people of God's kingdom, we are meant to live with humility in our most basic relationships. And we get that from verse 17, which calls us to be filled with the Spirit, and in combination with verse 29, that says we do that by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul applies that paradigm to three very basic relationships, to marriage in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, and then parent-child relationship in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, or 4, and then here we're going to look at verses 5 through 9, and we talk about this as, as work, that's how we're applying it, but you might notice as I read it, it uses language like bondservant and master. You might wonder, well, how does that relate to work? Why is that what we're applying it to? Um, ultimately, this text applies to any legally sanctioned authority, but I'm going to explain how work for us is the most helpful domain of life to apply the text to. And so if you'd stand with me as I read God's word, I'd love for you to do that. And keep in the back of your mind, verses 18 and 21, as I already mentioned, to be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, here, verse 5 of chapter 6, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead, grab a seat, and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and for the gift it is to us as your people. We thank you that each week we can gather and open your word and receive truth from you. And so, God, I pray that as I preach, that I would do my best to share clearly what you've said, and that you'd give us all help by your spirit to receive it. So would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We have an authority problem in America. And a Pew Research study from just last summer reveals some of the problem, where it it showed that 65% of Americans said that most political candidates run for office to serve their own personal interests. That's what Two-thirds of Americans think that our politicians are ultimately out for their own good. That is their primary aim. And when I say that we have an authority problem, I'm not saying that our suspicion isn't always warranted. 
We have all watched as authority figures, whether politicians or otherwise, have failed to live with integrity. And from what I can tell, the problem really does center on that stat that I just read. Americans believe that candidates are out for their own good. Another Pew study from a couple of years ago showed that it's really not just confined to government, but we have a problem with authority in a lot of domains of life, whether it be business leaders, especially in the tech industry, journalists, even religious leaders, and more. We, we have a problem with authority. And distrust in authority, no matter how valid, is not a good thing for a society. It does not lead to human flourishing, but the opposite. And the message of God for us today is that as spirit-filled people of God's kingdom, we're called to treat one another with respect and honor in these relationships of authority, to seek their good regardless of what role we have, whether we are in authority or we are under authority. And our goal in that then is the good of the other, because we are all under the benevolent authority of God who pursued our good at great cost to himself. And because of that, he liberates us from this poisonous cycle of authority that is so often motivated by self-interest, so often motivated by getting our own, and Jesus frees us to seek the good of those around us. And so here's the message of the sermon for us, if I could summarize it. We live within human authority structures as people who live under divine authority. So we live within human authority structures as people who live under divine authority. Throughout our passage, we're going to see that Paul several times appeals to this higher authority of Christ to inform how we live within human relationships. And in order to understand our passage, before we even really talk about the text very much, I want to help you understand some of the historical and cultural context a little bit better. The sermon may actually get a little bit longer before we're done, in part because this work is really important for us to understand the text. And so really the first point for us is that our cultural context matters in how we respond to authority as followers of Jesus. Our context is different than those to whom God originally authored this letter through Paul, okay? So the first thing we need to understand in that is the servant-master relationship in first century Ephesus. The word that is translated here as bond-servant in verse 5 of the ESV is the Greek word doulos, which is more closely translated actually as slave. At one point, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. The phrase is doulos iesu Christu, which apparently is a very popular tattoo for Christians to get these days. So if you are looking for a tattoo with Greek lettering, apparently that's like hot right now. So you can do that. (laughs) Something we need to understand about words is that they have layers of meaning to them. Okay, they, they don't always mean what we think that they do, and we always import things to those words and meaning based on our own experience. And so we want to understand how Paul is using the word slave here, and that's hard for us because we have our own historical context. So when we see that word, we read into it and we picture something like the slavery that we experience in the history of our American story together. But when Paul wrote the word doulos here, that's not what came into his mind nor is it what came into the mind of his readers, which is why the ESV Translation Committee chose to use the word bondservant instead of slave to keep us from importing our own history, because that is not what Paul intended to have happen. So at this point, it'd be helpful to tell you how first century Roman bondservants or slaves were different and also similar in some ways to new world chattel slavery. And so this week I read several commentaries on this, 
And they pointed out these different similarities and differences. And for the four I'm going to tell you about, I relied very heavily on Clinton Arnold's Ephesians commentary from the exegetical commentary in the New Testament series. So I'm going to highlight four things for you. The first is that racial factors played no role. So in Roman slavery, racial factors did not play a role. Throughout the Roman Empire, people of all different races and ethnicities were bondservants, and they came to be bondservants through several different avenues, either through as prisoners of war or as babies that were abandoned by their parents and then picked up by others, or people who sold themselves into slavery for economic protection. In New World slavery, slaves were captured throughout Africa and brought to other nations and sold as slaves. The second difference is that many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. Many of them, the majority of them, would actually get freedom at some point. Most bondservants would become free, and it was actually so common at one point that Augustus feared that it would disrupt the economic situation and cause massive inflation, and so he made laws about not emancipating slaves before the age of 30 or limiting how many could be emancipated within a given year. In New World slavery, slaves were almost never set free. A third difference is that many slaves were trained and educated and worked in specialized industries. Servants throughout the Roman Empire were highly competent, and they were trained and seen as a worthy investment to train as doctors or writers or tutors or other professions. Many still worked in agriculture and domestic settings, but it wasn't limited to that. In New World slavery, slaves were rarely educated or given roles with any responsibility. And the fourth difference is that freed slaves often became Roman citizens and often developed a client relationship with their former masters. Many slaves became free, they became citizens, they created meaningful work, and through a more autonomous relationship with their former masters, they did business. New World slavery never resulted in citizenship, and in fact, the the racial prejudice that started that has continued to linger in our country and continue to have an impact. It is clear that the environment of Ephesus was very different from American slavery. However, I do not want to paint this rosy picture of first century slavery as if it didn't have its own problems. There are many ways that they were very similar as well. Here's three of them. One, it still involved the coercive ownership of another human person. And slaves still suffered severely at the hands of their masters. And third, as a slave, they had very few legal rights. They had no rights to marriage or to have a family or to own any type of property. And so we should be careful as we make a distinction, excuse me, between New World chattel slavery and Roman slavery, there was still significant injustice that occurred in this first century institution. And so... Then the question we start to ask is, well, is the Bible sanctioning slavery then? Is that what Paul's doing here? And no, Paul is not sanctioning slavery, but he's giving instruction for how to live as a follower of Jesus, even within institutions that do not fully express God's design or desire for humanity. The reality of the world that we live in is that God's good design has been broken. So we're faced with complex ethical situations all the time, in how we relate to the world. No institution is perfect. All are flawed to one degree or another. And we also live in a world that is filled with God's common grace. He restrains evil through institutions that are often imperfect. So Paul is not condoning the institution of slavery, 
but he's telling Christians how to live within it. And one of the reasons that we know that God is not sanctioning slavery through Paul's writing is because his instruction here is different than what he does for marriage and parenting in those two sections just before this. In his instruction to husbands and wives, he grounds his teaching in God's design at creation. And in his instruction to the parent-child relationship, he appeals to the Ten Commandments that were part of God's covenant with his people. Nowhere in his instruction does he appeal for God's design as a model for the institution of slavery. He appeals to Christ's sacrifice and God's authority as a way to understand how we live rightly within this legally sanctioned authority structure, even imperfect ones, but Paul never sanctions it based on God's design. In fact, Paul's teaching here is one of the mechanisms that God used to begin eroding the institution of slavery throughout history. Because through this teaching, Paul gives equal personhood to both servants and masters. He attributes full inheritance and citizenship in the kingdom to both. Writing just four years before the beginning of the Civil War, Princeton theologian Charles Hodge published his commentary on the letter to the Ephesians. And when he was writing about this passage, he acknowledged that even though Paul tolerated the institution as lawful at the time, nevertheless, he goes on to say it should be, and here's this, it should never be, sorry, and here's this quote, it should never be cherished or rendered perpetual. Because Hodge appealed to the fact that it was not part of God's created design, like marriage and family, he's saying it will one day end based on God's design. This required a lot of courage from Hodge. Writing four years before the Civil War, he certainly had a number of Southern Presbyterians as students and patrons of the seminary at which he taught. And Hodge could see that even while Paul did not call for the immediate emancipation of all slaves, he was undermining the ideologies that kept the institution alive. History shows that even though some Christians were complicit with the institution of slavery in the world, it was through the initiative and arguments of many Christians based on the foundational principles of the scriptures that led to much of the abolition of slavery over the past three centuries. Now, there is not legally sanctioned slavery in America today, but some type of slavery still exists. Sex trafficking and child labor, it still happens in our country and around the world. This type of slavery, just to be very clear, does not fit the paradigm that Paul is talking about either. The slavery of Paul's day was part of an economic system. Nearly one-third of all people in the Roman Empire were bond servants. Paul is not talking about slavery that included immoral practices beyond the institution itself. He's not talking about temple prostitution or sex trafficking even in his day. Those still exist in some form around the world, and organizations like International Justice Mission have made it their mission to fight this injustice. It is their goal to end human slavery in our lifetime. So since there is no legally sanctioned slavery in America, what, how does this apply to us today? Is there a way in which Paul's writings here apply? And if we understand Paul's teaching as general instruction for Christians and how we respond to legally sanctioned authority, thank you, <clears throat> if we understand Paul's teaching as general instruction for Christians and how we respond to legally sanctioned authority. And that, it becomes highly applicable to many different settings. For most of us, it applies most directly to our workplace and our vocations. We are voluntarily giving authority to our employer for the work that we do. Now, there are many additional contexts that this can apply, 
But for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to focus primarily on the area of work and trust that you'll be able to discern the difference between your workplace and the context that Paul's writing to. So we come to our second point. Our attitude transcends our cultural context as followers of Jesus. The instruction that Paul is giving about the servant-master relationship, and one of the reasons it can apply to us today, even though our context is different, is because it's primarily about our attitude and our perspective. It isn't specific. He isn't saying, do this, don't do that. For servants, he's saying, as you obey your master, here's how you do it. For masters, he's saying, as you exercise authority, here's how you do it. And so I have three attitude adjustments that we all need in how we live within structures of human authority. One for those under authority, one for those in authority, and one for both. So for those under authority, here is the attitude you should have toward those over you. You should seek their good, not just their approval. From verses 5 through 7, Paul is giving instruction to those under authority. And he doesn't just want them to live for approval, but, or in verse 6, he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. He wants them to seek the good of their employer or those who are in authority over them. To, verse 7, render our service with a good will. And we do that, Paul gives kind of two statements about how this happens. Verse 5, we do that with fear and trembling. And here, fear and trembling is a combination of nouns that Paul uses four different times throughout his writings, always to mean respect and honor. He's not promoting traumatic work environments or or celebrating anxious work environments. He's talking about honor and respect. That's what he means by fear and trembling. And we do it with a sincere heart, verse 5, which means that we have a genuine and internal motivation for the good of those who we work under. Notice, he does not make their obedience and their attitude, their goodwill, contingent upon their master's moral integrity. He just says, servants, here is how you live under authority. Today, we have many legally sanctioned avenues to confront injustice among authorities, and we should take advantage of those, both for the good of ourselves and the good of those around us. But the attitude with which we live under authority, whether in our obedience of it or our confrontation of it, is what Paul is after here. And this translates well to our workplaces, because tomorrow many of you are going to head off to work. You'll get in your car or you'll log into a Zoom meeting from your home or however it is that you work, you'll head to work. And as you're working, you're going to have this question, what motivates me to work today? What, what is making me want to work diligently? Will I work hard just to get noticed? Will I work harder when I think that my boss is looking than when he's not? Meanwhile, you could care less about the success of your company or the good of the people in authority over you. These would not be motivations that would be consistent with what Paul's talking about, even if it looked like you were doing good work. It would have been natural for Christians in Ephesus to despise their earthly manager because they now had a heavenly one. They might think, I've got a heavenly manager now. I don't need to care about this earthly one. But Paul's actually saying the opposite. Because you have a heavenly master... Work for the earthly one with sincerity and honesty. In ancient Greek and Roman comedies, often one of the common tropes was a duplicitous and insincere slave who undermined the good of their masters. They had this secret pleasure in undermining the good of their masters through laziness and through poor work. 
but not those who follow Christ, Paul is saying. We will do good, honest, and sincere work because we have a higher authority. In the end, this is actually God's path to undermining evil institutions. We overcome evil with good. Next week, we're going to see this entire passage about spiritual warfare and how we prepare ourselves for this battle. It's a good reminder for us even here that our true enemy is never another human person, but the evil patterns that are propagated by the principalities of darkness. And the way that we overcome darkness is not to perpetuate that through insincere work. We don't overcome by despising another person. Darkness is overcome by light through honest and diligent work for the good of others. Now, for those in authority, here's an attitude change for you. Motivate through kindness, not coercion. You might read a passage like this and think to yourself, look at all the instruction that Paul gave to servants, and then just one verse to masters in verse 9. But don't miss the first five verses or five words that he gives to masters. He says, masters, do the same to them. The attitude that is meant to characterize servants is true for masters as well. Treat them with respect and dignity. Honor them as you would Christ. And the extra attention that is given to servants was not a dishonor to them, but actually an honor. It was unique to Paul relative to his contemporaries writing at this time. Very few writers would even address servants, let alone give them instruction as free moral agents, capable of virtue, capable of self-control. So do not misunderstand the fewer verses addressed to masters as a sign of disrespect to servants. It's actually the opposite. And Paul here then gives the clearest and most pointed command to masters. Stop your threatening. In ancient Rome, masters had complete power and ownership over their servants. They had the power of life and death. And if they did not like the way that their bond servants were behaving, they could give out whatever punishment they wanted. They could beat them, imprison them, or sell them into even harsher conditions. It did not matter whether the servant had even done anything wrong. A master had complete control. And they would often use the power to subdue their servants and require obedience. They would threaten and coerce. And this treatment did not engender honor and respect, but terror and intimidation. And if you are someone who has authority in your work, even if it is only over one other person, receive this instruction from the Lord. You may not think it applies to you because you don't use threats in the way that you think maybe Paul's talking about, at least in the strictest sense of the word. But what strategies do you use to motivate those under your care and your leadership? Now, obviously, this does not mean that people shouldn't receive consequences for poor quality work. You have to think about how to manage that. But do you find yourself using harsh or intimidating speech in order to motivate people? Is the threat of a consequence always looming? Do you hang it out there like a stick? In my experience, most people want to live under good and kind authority. We were designed to want that from God. But so often the breakdown in human authority structures comes from selfish motives, from coercive authorities. If you are in authority, be someone worthy of honor and respect. In the long run, you will get far more, you'll get honor and respect far more often that way than if you try to demand it through coercion and threats. And now for everyone, live as someone under divine authority not just within human authorities. 
over and over, Paul is wanting to elevate the conversation here, to take our understanding of human relationships into the realm of divine relationships. If this material world is all that there is, if this is all there is, then why not despise our masters? Why not live for ourselves? If this material world is all there is, then why not oppress those under us to get what we want without any regard for them? But if there is a divine authority over all earthly authorities, wouldn't that change the way that we live within human authorities on earth? So let's read through the passage and see if we can catch the ways that Paul appeals to Christ's authority. Begin in verse 5. He says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, and here it is, as you would Christ. The type of respect and honor we would show Jesus, show them to human authorities. In verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, here it is, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Ultimately, we are not servants of any human institution before we are servants of Christ, who sees all and knows all. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Our work is not ultimately for another human. It is for the Lord. In verse 8, he says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Here in verse 8, Paul shifts the language a little bit, and he puts master and servant on an equal standing before God. Whatever good we do, whether servant or free, we will receive back from the Lord based on the good that we do. Then in verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening. When he tells masters to do the same, he wants them to treat those under their authority as they would treat Jesus. All the appeals to Christ's authority, Paul is laying on the masters here as well. The same paradigm he has given to the servants, he is now giving to their masters, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. He's saying, remember earthly masters. You have a capital M master. Before you are in authority, you are under authority. And the one who is your master in heaven does not show favoritism based on your power or your position. Here in this passage, at least five times, Paul makes a direct appeal to God's authority as the basis for how we live in human authority structures. And because of that, we will subtly subvert human authority while practicing diligent loyalty to the institutions that we serve. This is the way of God's kingdom, not in a way that accepts corrupt institutions, but in a way that wills the good of everyone, because we know that human institutions do not have the final say, and it is the people within the institutions that God ultimately cares about. Now, our third point, our attitude is determined by our ultimate authority. There are so many forces working against this vision of human authority that God is giving us through Paul. And so we need to know that Jesus breaks the cycle of temptation that exists within human institutions. And the first thing we'll see is that for those in authority, they are tempted to be domineering. It happens when those in authority try to control others and use coercive techniques. It happens when supervisors are lazy and neglectful and then blame their problems on those who are under them. One of the reasons people in authority are tempted to be domineering is for their own comfort their own convenience, for their own good. They don't ultimately care about those under their charge. They're not out for their good, but for their own. 
I grew up in a family of blue-collar workers. My family is nearly always under management and rarely in management. And I heard a lot from them about how frustrating and foolish management can be. I hear about how companies make decisions that are disconnected from the needs and the perspectives of their workers. And when trust is eroded between those in authority and those under authority, it's often because decisions get made that seem like they are motivated by the convenience, comfort, and good of management. And now I know from my own experience and my own work, that's not always the case. Sometimes decisions are simply misunderstood. However, if you are in authority, then you need to ensure that the decisions you make are motivated by the good of those under you. Listen to how your decisions will impact them. I read a story recently about Tom Taylor, who became the CEO of Floor and Decor, one of the fastest growing home improvement stores in America. He started working at Home Depot at the age of 16, and he became the youngest store manager at Home Depot at the age of 22. And this hands-on experience as he grew within Home Depot gave him the perspective he needed to be a successful CEO. He didn't go to college, but he learned, as he says, and here's a quote from him, a title didn't make me any better or smarter than anyone else. And he added, treat people with respect and they'll go to bat for you, end quote. Taylor knew what it was like to work under management, so he treated his employees with respect. Another reason that people in authority can sometimes be domineering is not out of convenience, but out of fear. They might come to the conclusion that the way to get what they want and to get people to respect them is through coercion and threats. And that was certainly the case in first century Ephesus. We have written records of masters who talk about being afraid of their slaves, afraid to travel with their servants, because of other masters who had been murdered by their servants. And whenever the death of a master happened, it would always raise suspicion whether their servants had killed him. The relationship between servant and master was often contentious. And there was a belief that the solution then was to punish them into submission, to make servants so afraid of the consequence of harming their master that they would never even think about doing anything like it. This is why Paul gives this instruction, stop your threatening. This is not an environment for flourishing. Those in authority today may not be afraid of getting physically harmed by those under their supervision, but they are sometimes looking for strategies to motivate compliance nonetheless. And it might be tempting to think that they will get better response through coercive means. The threat of termination or of punishment is a strategy some supervisors will use, but it never works out in the long run. Remember, you are under the authority of Christ. God does not motivate you through threat, but through love. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Do not motivate through domineering, but through servant-hearted leadership. Now, in response to domineering authority, there's a temptation for those under authority to be disdainful. But Paul never gives permission to actively undermine the good of the people that we work for. Because in the end, our enemy is not the person, but the evil tendencies of human power that are perpetuated by the powers of darkness in the world. It is tempting to want to justify your disdain for your supervisor because they are domineering or they're incompetent. But the way that we bring the good of God's kingdom into the world is through honest and respectful work. We do not fight evil with evil, but with good. Because here's what happens. If we are disdainful under authority, 
we will be domineering in authority. If we find ourselves to be okay with disdaining our supervisors, then when we become supervisors, we are more likely to be domineering in that role. The same motivations lead to both. When we have come to believe that human institutions are all that there is in the world and forget that God is the authority above all human authority, when we believe the lie that the only way to get ahead is to fight for our own good and forget that God wants us to work for the good of others, then whether in authority or under authority, we will contribute to the cycle of temptation and perpetuate the institutions that we have come to hate. So we must see that Jesus breaks the cycle of temptation. It is only when we understand God's love for us in Christ that we can be freed from the domineering and disdainful relationships, the cycle that perpetuates. Because Jesus is the authority who gave up his own security and suffered. He is the king who stepped out of his throne and he came to serve, not to be served. For anyone in authority, we have an example of an ultimate authority pursuing the good of another at a great cost to himself. And he isn't just an example of how to do it. He frees us from our need to chase our own security because he has won our eternal good through his own sacrifice. One of the reasons that people in authority are so domineering is because they're afraid. They want to maintain their power. They want to produce good work because if they don't, it could cost them their position. It could cost them their job. If so, then by any means necessary, they might say, why not force good performance through threats or coercion? But Jesus came and secured our eternal good through his own suffering. He frees those in authority to know that their current position is not all that there is. There is a higher authority. There is a greater good. And so they can live with honor and respect. They can work for the good of those whom they supervise. And they, they can do that then and do good work together. Because even if they lose their position, they know that their eternal king shows no partiality in position and their eternal position in Christ is secure. He is the only king who gave up his position and he is the servant who conquered through his own sacrifice. It is easy to think that winning in this life is the ultimate goal. And if we cannot win, then at least we can grow bitter at those we think are winning. But we must not forget that the suffering of the cross was not the end. The victory of the resurrection reminds us that no human authority is ultimate. Jesus won through suffering. So we don't have to win through domineering or disdain. We can live for the good of the other. We can work for the honor and the respect of those around us because we are all under the same authority. When we come to see that we live within human authority structures as people who live under divine authority, then we'll be the freest people in the world. Regardless of position or privilege, we will be free to seek the good of those around us as we seek to do good work together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 